Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley, and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I'm lucky enough today to be joined by Dr. Corey Campbell out in beautiful, scenic, lovely <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. Corey, how are you? Great. Fantastic. Now, Corey, you are the uh, owner of uh, the worldwide headquarters of Omaha Spine and Sport and also uh, the vice president of, you're the Mike Pence of MPI, is that right? <laughs> yeah, great. Let's just start it like that for sure. I'm, I am the Mike Pence to Mark King's Donald Trump. Yeah, that would be correct. Yeah. That's a great analogy. All right, so you're on the uh, MPI COVID uh, task force then. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, I just, my staff members get COVID and I, I refuse to wear a mask. That's what we do here. <laughs> Fantastic. In all seriousness, Corey, you've, uh, you're, you're a chiropractor and you believe heavily in the integration of uh, the hands-on clinical skills and the integration of rehab into exercise, which I don't know why we delineate those, but I mean, you know, yeah, right. I think they're a continuation of the same thing, but uh, that's right up the alley of some of our listeners. So I want to dive into that. Yeah. So, um, I started teaching for MPI primarily as a palpation and adjusting instructor in 2003. Uh, Brett Winchester and, and was I, this actually sanctioned, or you're just putting your hands on a lot of, of people and saying, oh, "I'm a I'm a palpation instructor." Yeah, uh, I don't. I, well, Mark was paying me for it, so I'm assuming it was sanctioned. I guess I don't know. Okay, Maybe not. I get I get to check with him on that one. Um, but we never got sued for anything like. I'm pretty not sure the statute's anyway. up by now, so this is good. Yeah, yeah not for that anyway. Um, and so I started teaching the, the palpation and adjusting classes for Mark in 2003. And then uh, Brett and um, some other of my goofier colleagues went to the rehab diplomate. We did the rehab diplomate in Chicago and traveled to Prague and trained with Pavel and Carol Levitt and all those guys. And Brett and I designed the integration classes. They're called the MPI integration classes now. They were called the upper and lower dynamic classes, but some PT group already had that name. So they said, we can't use it. And so um, we should have had like a UFC style, like rehab off, you know, like, all right, you uh, try those people better. We'll try and get them better and we'll see who comes out on top. <laughs> right. Right. Just have a, yeah, we would have won. Um, so we didn't do that. We just renamed it. We were, we're pretty passive aggressive, I guess, for the most part in that part. Um, but we did the integration classes just because going through the rehab diplomate, it was hard to integrate all the stuff that we were learning into our, our clinical settings. You know, if you're seeing patients every 15 minutes or, you know, whatever your, your setup was, it was hard to make the things we were learning in the rehab diplomate work in a time efficient manner. So Brett and I basically sat down and said, Hey, what works, what doesn't work? And, you know, granted, this is a time you would appreciate this, Josh, is that, you know, we were teaching people how to do tr isolated transverse abdominus contractions and, and Kegels and those kinds of things. Cause at the time that's what the rehab world was all about. Yeah. And then we, you know, obviously we've changed and gotten rid of a lot of things and, you know, we, it's one of the things we pride ourselves on is, is more information comes out, more things that work clinically, we get rid of stuff, right. we add stuff in, we try to make it very palatable for a young clinician or a young doctor coming out. It's tough for students because they can't use it right away. That's the hard part about the integration classes. They mm -hmm. love it because it incorporates soft tissue and, and rehab and exercise and progressions and things like that, but it's hard for them to use it and see how it works clinically. But our goal was to was to take this stuff that we have learned and then play with it in our own clinics and see what works and what didn't work and then present that to to our MPI group. And so we had those two classes. Yeah. Now you are blessed with the curse of an expert because uh, in two sentences you said, "Yeah, I went to the rehab diplomate, check the box for expert," 
Uh, and then we were in Chicago and then, you know, went to Prague with, with, uh, collage. Like <laughs> you just kind of, you know, yeah, I was just uh, on a date with, uh, <clears throat> Crawford. And then, you know, we decided to go to a nightclub, like slow down, let's back up a little bit. <laughs> All right. So there you are. I, I want to just unpack some things here. So you're a yeah. practic- chiropractor. You've been doing API since I think school. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you do the rehab diplomate from <clears throat> what you learned in school till you got your diplomate of rehab what were some of the shifts you went through in your mind? Like what were the, the, the paradigm shifts that occurred there? Holy moly. So many of them. So the yeah, first period, baby, <laughs> I mean, this r- is just a right. TV. Yeah. <laughs> so many shifts that go on in Prague. Um, there's the morning shift, the afternoon shift, and then there's the late night shift. And then there's the late, late night shift in Prague. Um, but yeah, as far as like in school, so I came out of a medical technology, um, world. I was a med tech for two years prior to going back to school, realizing I didn't want to do that. So I went from a, um, an oncology hematology subdivision of, of med tech work where I was prepping and looking at biopsies and looking for cancer cells to, to chiropractic school and going from a very black and white, either you have cancer, you don't have cancer, talking to a pathologist to this uh, you know, there's a little bit of philosophy and there's this guy, innate running around through your body and healing things. And then there's Sharpie fibers in the spinal anatomy class and just didn't make any sense. So, um, the first paradigm shift was when, uh, the wait, first wait, are you saying it doesn't make sense? Like you're a Sharpie fiber denier. Is that what you're? No, Sharpie fibers. I like those because okay. I could, I just want to wrap my you. head around that. I couldn't yeah. wrap my head around this heavy philosophical, well, it wasn't, it wasn't philosophy, it's bad science, but, um, you know, just we, everything gets cured by adjusting things like everything. And then you go to a spinal anatomy class where it makes sense. And then you go back to a philosophy class. Like I was really a little bit discouraged. And so one of my friends said, there's a motion palpation class coming in the town. You should check it out. I asked my static palpation instructor at the time, if that was a good idea, because I was a rule follower. And he's like, no, they're just going to talk about science and they're going to teach you how to adjust and a bunch of bad habits. So I signed up for that class right away. And, um, and that was the first paradigm shift because it actually made sense. They were talking about some of the current literature at the time, some of the research, the, the, what happens when you actually adjust people um, versus moving bones and freeing off knee, nerve interference and you know things like that. And so that was the first paradigm shift. The second one was you know getting into the rehab world where you know, I would read, I felt like the the Catholic school kid that had his, his playboy hidden in a history book. I was sitting in the back of my class with my Stu McGill book, reading low back disorders in some of my classes because I wanted to learn this stuff. And so that shift started then with McGill, Hodges, Hydes, you know, some of those people that the early rehab, you know, influences that made a bunch of sense, Andre Vleeming, um, Diane Lee, those kinds of people. And so when I got a chance to do the rehab diplomate, I jumped at it because the first two instructors were Stu McGill and Craig Liebenson. And so, you know, two big players in, in the, in the rehab world, obviously. And so I did that class. Annie O'Connor was part of the rehab diplomate then. Um, just a number of just really good instructors. And so, uh, Don Murphy was part of that group. And so I did it just because of the strength of the instructors. I mean, I, I wouldn't, now it's kind of scattered a little bit. It's a little different, but it was a really good class. And it, I mean, obviously that was a huge shift because now we're going from, you know, you can, you can do a lot with the manipulative care. And you, if you're a good adjuster, you can do a lot. If you're a good palpator, you can even do any more. But then if you understand like how that plays into that whole triad of the CNS, the passive subsystem, the active subsystem, and how you can start to integrate you know, where you want to access that patient at is it the active side is it the passive side. Is there a combination of those things? That was the second paradigm shift when the things started, the tumbler started falling into place for me was, um, is that you can use all of these things as access points to different patients and get really, really good results. Um, and so that was probably the second paradigm shift with just how you can use all of these different things. And they just play the same they're just a different player in the same system and it's an access point and it's up to you to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together in a patient exam to know which ones are going to be the most effective. So you basically went into a symphony hall. You said this music's pretty good, but something's 
something's off. I don't know what it is. Then you learned how to basically tell the difference between the uh, woodwind instruments and the strings. And then you went down to the strings and said, I think it's actually the viola that's off. And you went to three viola players and figured out which one it was and said, hey, tune your viola. We'll start there. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you kind of, your analogies are amazing, but yes, absolutely. That's, and so I, I mean, the, we've all gone down rabbit holes and I've went down the DNS rabbit hole. It wasn't even called DNS when we first started taking it in the Czech Republic. It's called reflex locomotion. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I went down all those different rabbit holes, went kind of crazy and, you know, um, the rehab world went crazy into the soft tissue world. And then you come back to Omaha. I'm just picturing you as like the dude with like a light bulb running into the jungle. Check this out. We have. <laughs> That's exactly. Like, yeah. What the hell are you talking about, dude? Like, what oh, for sure. Uh, and they just want to adjust it. Cool. And that's what's nice is I've kind of come full circle. Yeah. You're like, just believe me, it's cool. So, so there you are. I mean, you, you're learning from the big hitters in North America, right? Um, McGill, Winchester, um, Liebenson. Uh, you know, the, the MPI crew, you're Annie O'Connor, right? So, and then, and then after that, you go over to Prague to kind of, I'm going to guess what you thought was, uh, sharpen your knife. And then like, it turned into a whole lot more than that. Uh, yeah. So when we first went to Prague, so it was Brett. I always tell people like now <laughs> this is the first exposure I've ever DNS was from my friend, Charlie Weingroff. And he's like, you got to check this out. And I went on the website and it was like when they had the kids like in diapers. <laughs> and when I say diapers, I'm not talking huggies like the, yeah. you know, the dinner napkin that's folded and pinned, you know? And I'm like, Charlie, <laughs> right. right. what in the hell are you talking about? Like, that is <laughs> some funky German, you know, weird shit. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, and so it was even stranger then because we had just finished the first hundred hours of the diplomate <clears throat> and we got this this invitation basically to go to the Czech Republic and this guy, Pavel Kolaj is like the headliner. And we're like, who is this guy? Like we're there to see Carol Levitt. Um, we're going to learn from a Bruger camp and the Yonda had just passed away. So not Yonda, but the Yonda group, but it was all about this Pavel Kolaj guy and nobody even knew who this guy was at the time. And so he gives us this paper on the phylogeny and protogeny of, of development. And we're just like, what are we getting ourselves into? Lean over. Yeah, and there's all these reflex zones and these reflex activation things. And there was a video of this person that was having convulsions. And we're like, what are we going, what are we getting ourselves into? And the first day was all collage and developmental kinesiology. And, you know, it's great. It was cool when we're looking back on it, but we're looking at each other like, what the is this guy talking about? Like, yeah. What is he, what is, what are we getting ourselves into? I want to see Carol Levitt. Like, where's Carol Levitt? Well, when are we going to do some PIR? When are we going to do some trigger point stuff? You know, that kind of stuff. And uh, the rest of the weekend was just this strange kind of surreal off and on. Of course, Carol was there and he was, you know, 80 something at the time. Just a phenomenal guy. Great palpator, beautiful soul, amazing clinician. Um, and then, but a lot of it was just dominated by, by collage. And now we kind of know why the dude is a genius or is a genius and, and is also a very good clinician yeah. as well. And I so, had a patient, I had a patient one time, uh, and he grew up in Southern California and there's this place down by Newport beach called crystal cove. And back in the forties, uh, some people somehow got a hold of like pieces of the beach and they built little houses on them. Right. And when I say on the beach, I'm saying on the beach, this is not <laughs> looking the beach. This isn't a hundred yards from like, this is on the beach, right? Right there. And he was saying that, uh, he said, yeah, it's funny what you, what you don't know when you're young and you complain about, and then you would kill to have when you're older. He said every year when school would end, we'd spend the weekend at home. And then the first month of summer vacation, we went down to grandpa's house, which was one of these houses on the beach. <laughs> and he said, I remember telling my mom, like, mom, seriously, do we have to go? Like, all we do there is paint and clean. <laughs> and it's like, you know, what you have to do on a house that's on the beach. He's like, but you know what? I realized by the time I was like 14, I was a pretty good surfer. So I don't think we spent the entire time painting. Right. <laughs> like, you know, a year ago, I took my family down and we walked by the old house. Now they're all owned by the state and they're like a national preservation thing. And he's like, I would kill to have a <laughs> right. one of those houses. I would kill for it. And here it's I was complaining to my paint. mom, like, oh my God, we have to spend another month on the beach. <laughs> right. 
And here you were like going, who is this joker? You know, is this like, who's bringing this guy in? We wanted the, the, you know, we wanted the varsity level players and this, yeah. I don't even know this guy's name. I can't even spell it for God's sakes. Right. Yeah. Right. We're definitely not pronounced the same way it's spelled. Not, not to a Nebraska anyway, that's for sure. <laughs> but it was, it was clear by the end of the week. Um, he was definitely not only on the varsity team, but he was maybe even the captain of it because they had yeah. some patient presentations with him and Carol. And it's funny because they would always kind of default to Collage's decision at the end. So you kind of knew you're, you're in the midst of something pretty special. Yeah, we do that. I had some college buddies and it was, uh, our rule was if our buddy Lonnie said it was a bad idea and somebody would probably get hurt, that's when we knew like somebody's definitely going to get hurt. <laughs> yeah, right. If Lonnie exactly. thinks it's unsafe. Like it'd be like going to this, you know, the, the guys on jackass and being like, should we do this? Like, no, that's dangerous. Like, Oh shit. We're... <laughs> You're right. Exactly. It's a bad idea. But like what, what did you see them do there? Cause I'm going to jump back to, to you going, coming back to the States. Cause I, I mm-hmm. want to bring up a point here, but I just like, what was the, uh, I mean, you're watching, uh, you're, you know, you're watching freaking. I'm trying to think of, a, of an athlete analogy, you know, Bruce Lee at his finest, right? Like you're watching the greatest athlete, Michael Jordan in the game seven of the championships and you got a front row seat, right? Yeah. And we didn't know what we were watching. Like we were watching a lot of it was reflex activation. So a lot of it was the, like the pure void of the reflex locomotion stuff. Now, are you totally at this point, like you've never seen that before? Never seen it. First time time I'd ever seen it. So not only, I mean, this is your your front row tickets to Jordan at game seven, and you've never seen basketball played. I've never seen basketball played. No, I've never seen it before. Not only am I watching the best in the business, but I didn't even know what the game was. Right. Exactly. That's, it's crazy to go, to think back on those things. And like, I remember Brett and I talking afterwards you know, even just after a day, like, what did we just see? Like, and what, and what do we do with that information? Like, what do we do with this? Like, how does this help us in the clinic? And like, how do we talk to our patients and be like, Hey, I'm just going to hold some points for about three minutes. And if you start to feel your body start to like convulse, then that's a good thing. Like, how am I going to communicate that to my patient and, and get it across? And then, and even in my head, like, what does that do for me? Like, what does that like clinically do for me and we don't know we just want to know if we can do it you know how they again it's if you've never seen basketball and you you just want to shoot and see if you can actually make a, a basket every now and then even right. not even knowing what the end game is and so it was very it was it was good it, it was very unorganized uh, at the time it's way more organized now with the dns stuff like that was the probably the best thing about dns is that they organized all these things and they turned it into more of a rehab based um, class with less low, you know, reflex activation. Cause until like, that's like the basic, the reflex stuff is like the end game or is like the end part of it. Like we basically were seeing these classes in reverse as, as far as like what's clinically useful. You don't have to do reflex activation to you, have. You hadn't learned how to dribble a basketball and you're, yeah. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we, we, we got to see, you know, high flying dunks and people taking off from the free throw line right away. And so we're like, oh yeah, first you got to learn how to dribble. Yeah. Um, but it was like that. And it was good though, because it was broken up into different, you know, sections and Carol Levitt had his, his moments in the sun and the Burger camp came in and showed us a bunch of their stuff. And the Yonda group, you know, came in and talked about the proprioceptive retraining. So it was good. It was just, again, like I said, it wasn't horribly organized. And so we had to go back and take it to the clinic and fail with it so many times to like figure out how to actually use it in a setting that worked here in the States. Now, yeah. So, so you do this for, what are you there for a week or something? 10 days. Yeah. All right. 10 days. Your brain is aching from it's getting stretched so much. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. You fly and back the, on the, the air was really good too. And that probably yeah. didn't help the, the brain part of it. Well, I mean, you needed to like drink and get high to hallucinate just to come back to normal from what you were seeing during the day, right? Like (laughs) hallucinations of the worst trip you could be on. And in that part of the country is like uh, your body trying to return to normalcy after what you just saw performed on a human. You're like, what? Yeah. I mean, the bars were the normal part in Prague. (laughs) It was the clinical setting that was the weird stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so then you come back to the U.S. and here you are with like this amazing skill set. You've seen a master play. You, you've seen it all. And you step back into your clinic. Like what was the feeling when you got home? Like, uh, it's like drinking from a fire hose. It was overwhelmed. Just like, you know, like I tell the students that I teach to, um, you know, it's, it's just too much information to take in. And so, you know, again, Brett and I have always kind of been in close communication with each other and I, we would call each other and be like, so did you do some of that stuff this week? And I'm like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and the joke was, you know, we'd be doing these reflex activation things to see if we can get something to change. And we'd say, Mary, do you feel anything different? She'd be like, no. I'm like, okay, hang on a second. Two minutes later, Mary, does that feel different? She's like, nope, not a di- not, I don't feel anything. Just what, exactly. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. Like we were just failing miserably at this until we finally took some other classes um, with the PTs who broke it down into smaller steps that were a little more, a little more easy to digest. Um, and then we were able to start to see like what this, ultimately was heading towards and why it was useful clinically. So it took us a good year or so to even like be able to figure out how to use this stuff in the clinic. And so it was definitely overwhelming. In our basketball analogy, you were, you had the lights off in your gym and you were throwing the ball and going, Brett, did it, did you hear it hit the basket? <laughs> yeah. No, throw another yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. Did you hear that Try right? Underhand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Go again. <laughs> Baseball throw this one. Uh, yeah, nothing. Nothing. Still nothing. Still, this isn't working. Nice. Now, how did you, uh, how'd you justify that? So, so take me through the journey. You're, you're also trying to run a business here, right? You're like, hey, I'd like to kind of make money. Yeah. And uh, I think that's kind of a forgotten piece of this. Like if you look historically at when DNS or whatever you want to call it was developed and even, you know, Yonda and everything, uh, they weren't running businesses, right? They're mostly coming out of communist countries and a ton of young, sick bodies that had to be cared for with nothing, with essentially horrible hospitals, right? Like there's nothing to provide them. So if you ever want a lesson for those, you know, young students listening, students and young (laughs) clinicians, like problem solving rarely happens when you have everything at your access. Like uh, uh, American hospitals are horrible problem solvers in general because we have too much reliance on technology. Yeah. And oftentimes like solving the problem by staying inside the box gives you some things you might never think of. If you, if your only solution is I need to take another course or buy another piece of equipment. Right. Right. And so that was the other thing, you know, that we talked about is that once did you make any money? No, no. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I, I ran a, basically a, your, typical chiropractic office. I incorporated some rehab. Um, I'm not certified in ART anymore, but I was at one point in time. And so I was doing ART and those kinds of things, Um, you know, which was, you know, what patients were coming to see me. And I was slowly starting to integrate these other things into it. It was just hard to figure out how to do that until we realized that, you know, in a socialist hospital setting, Pavel and these guys could could admit patients into their hospital and treat them for an hour twice a day and get amazing results. We couldn't, we couldn't do that. And so it was like this weight was kind of lifted off our shoulders. And as we started playing with the pieces and the, and the progressions, you know, you start with respiration, you start with teaching a patient how to breathe and then you teach them how to brace and then you teach them how to move in triplanar in triplanar ways within varying loads and depending on what their ultimate end goal is. If it's an ACL rehab thing, then we start with this and we tell them why it's important to start with respiration to get the foundation, to be able to stabilize the hip so that the knee doesn't get placed in these weird positions. And then you progress from there into, you know, your Gary Gray's, you know, the different things that are out there. Um, FMS wasn't even a thing when I first started in SFMA and those kinds of things, which is cool that it's out there that you've seen the progression of these things as they've gone and they've made them easier for people to understand. I think we were kind of dealing in a, a very, um, it was just kind of scattered. It, it, there was no progressions that was, there was no, there was nothing that was laid out for you. And so you kind of had to figure it out, which I, I'm glad I did um, because it just makes it easier for me to see when a progression's ready or not. And it's easier for me to train somebody to be able to, to know, you know, what the progressions are now. 
Yeah. Wow. So, so now how did you start shoving it into that 15 minute visit you talked about or whatever your time time slot was? Um, like, you know, at some point you, you had to start transitioning there into, Hey, I, I believe in my gut. I want to do this stuff. And I believe in my wallet. <laughs> I need to write this stuff. And how do you, how do you justify those two? Cause one is going to get a ton of patient satisfaction and, and improvement, but you can't do that if your doors aren't open. Right. right. Yeah. And so I just got really efficient with it until, you know, and again, I think as you would know, the model now is that you train either a CA or you have a personal trainer come in and you, you pay them an hourly amount. You let them build their own personal training business around what you're doing, but you train them in the stuff that you're doing from a rehab standpoint and you hand that off to somebody else because you're not making that much money doing your own rehab. If you're spending 30 minutes with the patient, at least in Nebraska, it's diminishing returns. You're not getting near as much for that second 15 minutes as you are that first 15 minutes. And so if you can turn that, turn that over to somebody else or train somebody else to do it, then that's the transition that ultimately you'd like to make, or you just be very, you become very efficient with your manual treatment at the beginning. And then you, you, you have these, these audits and these, these checkpoints and these landmarks for patients to hit as you progress them through their, uh, you know, through their rehab to, performance progression, however you want to look at it, or, you know, some patients aren't going to want to get that far. You're saying it might be a good idea to hire somebody to do like rehab and exercise with your patients and then like turn that into like its own part of your business. Yeah. Hold I mean, on, that's, Corey, I'm going to take notes here. Cause this sounds yeah, like an idea. I think, you, I think maybe, maybe you know something about this. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this cause this sounds very interesting. Yes. Yeah. I heard I there's a guy, though, there's, I heard there's a book out there actually that kind of explains all this. And like there might be. Yeah, yeah I have some secrets about this clinic gym kind of a uh, hybrid model. Yeah, I've heard about this. Uh, yeah. um, I'm going no, to look into this more. If it's in an audio book, then I'll, I'll read it. If it's All not, right, well, I, I'm not good with it. You don't want to hear my nasally drone, my man. You know. <laughs> Are you interested in becoming a better provider for musculoskeletal conditions? Well, if you know me, you might have seen me out on the road, but I totally believe in, I love, I adore the SFMA, the Selective Functional Movement Assessment. It is a fantastic way of assessing the movement-based dysfunctions in your patients. Now, why movement? Because movement has to do with motor control, and that's usually the first sign that pain is going to develop. And it's a better, more reliable method than assessing pain. So if you're interested in using a movement-based diagnostic system as part of your intake protocol, I would highly recommend the SFMA. Plus, they've got the best instructors. I'm one of them. So I'll make it fun. I'm easy to listen to. And well, I don't know about that, but I enjoy teaching it. And it's a fantastic course. I recommend it. So check out functionalmovement.com and look for an SFMA course near you. Functionalmovement.com. Look for an SFMA level one coming to your area. Hope to see you there. I remember reading this. Um, I don't remember if it was good to great or some, some business book one time. And they're saying that like in the late seventies, when oil was just off the charts expensive, one of the things that the oil companies had to do was that they were drilling like 15 wells to get to one that actually hit oil. And they said, the only way we're going to survive is if we are more, much more accurate at drilling wells. Right. Right. And I think like, yeah, this is kind of like me early on in my early days. It's like I'm drilling a lot, I'm doing a lot of treatment and 14 of the tre- 15 treatments I do are not doing anything for this person. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, and so what they did is like, there were like five well-recognized models of, you know, let's just say there's the Campbell method, the Satterley method, the Jones method, the Smith method, and, you know, and so BP oil decided, all right, we're only going to drill wells where at least three of the five models agree that that's where we should drill. But if you only have one, like don't do it. Right. right. Yeah. And I love the idea of, of, for example, adding exercise because you ended up at that place. Brett ended up at that place. People we've mm-hmm. never met ended up at that place that you have to have that blend in that business model, which essentially means like we're testing it against open source and saying like, what does everybody end up with? And it's this model, right? Like, right. And, and I, you know, like, of course I'm, I'm a huge proponent of it, but even without me, the, the bulk of, chiropractors who study this kind of whatever you want to say functional model are going to end up there because it's 
it, it's been proven to come up with wells that actually have oil in them, you know, like your money making wells. Right. And I think in a perfect world, I would love, you know, so, um, like I, I'm a big believer in SFMA, but if I run an SFMA and I'm going, Hey, the problem here is this left hip, the lack of rotation at the left hip. And you run your whole diagnostic system and end up at the left hip. And we get some of these studies. Uh, I'm trying to think a very straight provider saying, Hey, I think it's on the left side of the pelvis or hip. Like we should go like, Hey, we all agree. We're at the same place here. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's interesting that you started out in the U S you went to a, chiropractic college, you joined up with Brett, you went to Prague, you did all these things. And basically what you came down to is you came back. If we strip it away, like you, you have to diagnose till your hands come off, you know, like don't, don't just jump into treatment. And also you have to address the soft tissue components. And, and it seems like everybody, I wasn't, you know, I've, I've never studied under those guys like you have, but it seems like, Hey, the osseous adjustments or manipulations or whatever you call them are an accelerator to that. But if you don't have something to accelerate, they're not going to, if you don't know why you're accelerating, they're not going to do anything for you. Exactly. And that's, you know, we say it all the time in the MPI classes is that you need to do a thorough exam, you know, whatever your protocol is or whatever your exam is, it's got to be reproducible. It's got to be thorough. And if you take your time up front, you know, to be thorough and, and time doesn't, you don't have to take a long time to be efficient and to be exact with your, with mm -hmm. your exams. That's mm -hmm. the other thing that's hard to get across to students is they confuse being efficient or being thorough with taking a long time. You can still be thorough and be efficient with your time. Mm -hmm. um, but our thing is that you've got to be, you've got to nail down that exam. You get that exam nailed down, then you know exactly what to treat. You know what joints need adjusted. You know what soft tissues need to be worked. You know what's, what joints need to be stabilized. And then you have this toolbox, whether it's DNS, SFMA, FMS, corrective exercises, DNS, like it doesn't matter as long as you know what needs to be stabilized and you know what the capacity of the patient is at that point in time. And the only way you know that is by testing, retesting, auditing constantly. But it starts with that thorough exam up front. And from there, then you can plug in your manual therapies, which is what makes your money. And then you can also integrate the, the corrective exercises, rehab, FMS, whatever your toolbox is, whatever you're, whatever you're comfortable with, as long as you understand how that fits into that whole triad of the CNS, the passive and active subsystems, then you get to be creative with that as long as you audit it through the process. And it holds you accountable. Like you, if, you're, if you're wrong, then you can change gears. Like I love being wrong with patients. Like I love screwing something up at the beginning and being like, hey, wait, because I audit all the way through my treatment plan, like I like to switch gears because that challenges me and that makes me better for that next person that walks in. Yeah. Like they say, you know, success is a horrible teacher when you do yeah. 15 things and it, and one of them worked, you're just not sure which one worked. <laughs> right. It does not teach you anything about how to get people better. But when you try something that you're betting your house on and all of a sudden it's like, Oh crap, that didn't work. Right. You remember that stuff. Yeah. This is, and I guess this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? Is, uh, yes. I think the downside, I always say this in my SFMA classes to students, I'm like, the downside here is you're going to start with this and you're not going to get as many screw, total screw-ups the first year of your career like I did. <laughs> like, right. I know I screwed people up and I hate it, but, uh, but it was yeah. the best learning, you know? Right. That's why I tell my, my students all the time. It's one of my opening jokes just to see what kind of, what kind of crowd I'm dealing with and how how hard it's going to be the rest of the weekend is, you know, this class basically could be called what I have effed up over the years. And you, I usually drop the F bomb just to see where I'm at. And if a couple of people get up and walk out when well, then I've at least, you know, natural selection, I've gotten rid of the people I don't want to talk to anyway. So mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's true. Like you do learn a lot by just by failing. And we, we did a lot of that early on because we didn't have, you know, that's what I like about SFMA and FMS is that it, it does, it's easier for students coming out of school to be able to follow these things and to mm -hmm. know what they're finding versus, you know, our exams were hip extension test and the shoulder abduction test. And it was very subjective to what you were seeing. It was very driven visually. And now they can actually, you know, put numbers to it and quantify it a lot better than what we had when we first started out. But it also did help us with the whole being able to visualize things and watch gate and all of that kind of stuff. It does 
those those clues and those cues can cut your your time down from an exam standpoint relatively significantly. And then if you're good with your palpation skills in the joint world, then you're kind of a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. So as you uh, as you progress, so you started out with um, basically as an and as a guy relying heavily on adjustment, then you transitioned your prog prog days or years were diagnostics and testing. And then, you know, you came back to exercise. Um, do you still see that you're, you're polishing up your adjusting skills as well? Constantly. I, I tell my, you know, my, my students, my classes, and, and even the, I have two independent contractors here now um, with me. Like if you really want to be efficient and cut time down in your exam, like you have to be good as a palpator. Like the best way to assess the joint system, in my humble opinion, is to be able to palpate and to know the axes of rotation and know how joints work. And if you're good at palpating that, then you can kind of cut through the chase. And it also gives you cues as to if a joint system isn't working, let's take the cervical thoracic junction, for example, mm-hmm. then the muscle system around that area has to be skewed. There's no other way because the brain doesn't know any better. It just doesn't know it's not getting information from the joint system. So it has to, the only vehicle it has to affect that area is through the muscular system. And so that's going to give you cues as to what's working, what's not working, what you need to work on, what you can't change with you know, rehab and what you can change with rehab. Like if you're trying to do cervical stabilizing exercises in a, in a junctional area that's restricted to, you know, all get out, that's a complete waste of time because your brain can't circumvent the joint system, not getting information to it. And so until the joint system is right, then the muscle system isn't going to get right. And so you can be efficient, but the only way to really assess the joint system in my, the best way, and there's lots of ways to assess it, don't get me wrong, but the best way is, is through palpation. And so that's the thing I think I constantly work on because there's so many layers to being a, a good joint palpator. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's one of those things, I don't know if you get this feeling, like sometimes I, I palpate and I go, man, am I just not, am I just not feeling it? Like something. <laughs> Still get it. 16 yeah. years later. 60, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not the only one then. Great. No, no, not at all. But at least you know that it's not right and that something needs to happen. And so that's where sometimes the treatment. I think the and when, I said, when I said earlier, like going, you know, thinking inside the box, I think uh, one of the worst parts about, I think the best thing you can do out of school, if I were to go back, like in school, for all those students listening in school, I don't know what you think, Corey, I would become a certified personal trainer the first day I entered chiropractic college. And every weekend I try and work with five or six people on a Saturday and maybe two nights a week work with one or two people oh, just to get, yeah, that's interaction with people, work on my language skills and, and talking to them and, yeah. uh, and figuring that stuff out. And then and being able to just tell them like, Hey, you know what? And that's also a, a, the communication part of it. Something that just kind of gets glossed over, like being able to talk to patients and pod doc talk to people and being okay with saying, Hey, this is going to cost a few hundred dollars, you know, as a personal trainer like being able to just say that and get it over with so that when you get into school, you don't hem haw around your, with your treatment plans. Right. Yeah. And then after school, I would go to the busiest practice I could because the worst thing that the worst habit you get into is if you go out on your own and you have half hour, hour, two hours with people, <laughs> there's no pressure on every move. You can do anything and everything you want. And what I challenge some of my students to do, uh, you know, and, after we do like SFMA courses, I'll say like, all right, what, what are the, you know, put together a treatment thing that you want to do. And they'll come up with a list, like five or six things. All right. If you can only do three of them, what would you do? You only do two of them. All right. How about one? You get to do one adjustment or one exercise or one anything, but you only get to do one. What are you going to put your money on? Yeah. And it's funny when you reduce it down to that, all of a sudden the, the people that were confident with eight moves are now like, uh, I'd probably hand it off to this dude next to me. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and I think that was. And you can you can jump in here. Just I think that's the problem with students coming out now is that they have so much information and they don't really know how to how to rein it into those one or two things that are going to make the biggest difference. And then the other thing is, I can't imagine coming out of school not being able to adjust certain junctional areas but telling somebody that they need to go home and work on their breathing for three hours or to do this corrective exercise for three times a day for whatever the prescription is. Like that would be such a sickening feeling to me to not be able to deliver 
you know, the buy-in part, which is what you can do with your hands and, and with your brain, you know, obviously to, to be smart enough to put together a good clinical plan that makes sense. That's going to incorporate those soft tissues and those kinds of things, but to not be able to deliver, you know, with your hands would be just, Oh, it makes me sick. Just thinking about it. It'd be a, such a horrible feeling. Yeah. You can go shower after this podcast is fine, Corey. So no, I, well, no, I mean, and you can kind of speak to this, like, don't, I think you see that though, like with the, the newer grads that are kind of searching for something to kind of yeah. get them away from what, you know, what we do from a skill standpoint, even if it's soft tissue, like I don't care, but you got to be able to deliver with your hands because people come to a chiropractor because of what they've heard of, you know, for the most part, what we can do from a manual therapy standpoint and to not be able to deliver a manual therapy to get that initial buy-in to do these other things is, is I think is, is the disconnect. I think that's where the students are missing things. Yeah. And you don't know what you've got until, you know, it's gone. They, they say, but like the other side of that, that I, I don't want to overlook and that I, I hope people realize too, is the connection you build by actively putting your hands on somebody and relieving pain. I mean, they talk about Jesus, like laying his hands upon, you know, people and, and healing. And I'm not saying that, you know, Corey, you're Jesus, like probably one of the disciples or something, but no, no. Uh, but I'm saying like that was written about in the Bible. And, and if you look throughout history, it's always talked about, about a healer, the healing hands, like putting your hands upon someone, but the connection you build from a business standpoint, don't ever forget that like, it's very rare in, in business to connect with your customers at that level. Right. Like, it's immense. You go down to the tire shop to get, you know, $1,500 worth of work on your car you're not going to, maybe you're not even going to shake that dude's hand because it's greasy, right? But right. you're physically touching every one of your patients. You're having an intimate conversation about what they're either scared of or what's holding them back from achieving or, you know, when they have pain. That connection is so huge. So it allows you to, when you send emails or when you send letters or when you have conversations or workshops, people now have this deep, deep connection that can be hugely advantageous when you compare it to other businesses, you know, I have a friend who makes all his money selling stuff online and it's like, he doesn't know any of his customers. He's no, known them, you know? Right. And our, our, and our business model doesn't work that way. And that's huge is, is that, you know, getting people to shift from the left brain, what's wrong with me? You know, Dr. Google told me it's this weird fungus that I got in Jamaican holiday that I took and to the, the right brain. Wait, wait, I can feel something like I, he can feel this. I can feel it. Like it's such a, it, it just solidifies the patient, the doctor patient connection that, that that's a, a huge important step in, in what you do. And then if you're going to integrate exercise, then I think it's even more important because once you have that buy-in with the patient, because they've connected on the, I feel different. I feel this, he feels this kind of thing level, then they're going to be able, they're going to, they're going to do what you act they're like, this guy knows what he's talking about because I felt different. Now, whatever he's saying as far as the rehab world goes or this exercise, then I think I should do it because he obviously knows what he's doing because he made me feel different. And that's a huge, that's a huge practice builder. Yeah. Well, Corey, uh, since you are a man of so many lessons that you've, you know, taken a few on the chin and succeeded in others, um, as you step back and look at the things that were most impactful, unfortunately, a lot of the folks listening now cannot go to Prague and hear from the people you heard from, right? That, right. Yeah, that shift has passed. world now, yeah. Yeah. But what are some, um, do you have any books or anything you recommend uh, that maybe are outside of our normal chiropractic practice or our normal PT or, or athletic training practice that really help shape the way you think about things? Um, outside of the clinical book world? Yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, I've got my list of the, the, of my heavy hitters, you know, you can never go wrong with Stephen Covey's seven, uh, habits of highly successful people. That's, that's a must. I think, uh, Simon Sinek start with why motivation manifesto by Brendan Richard, um, as well as his, um, his, his habits book as well. Um, those are, those are some key ones. And then, uh, I just, you know, as goofy as this may sound, as new agey as it is, there's, you can never go wrong with Wayne Dyer's uh, Manifest Your Destiny. Like, you can't go wrong with those things. There's there's some certain, and like in the manual therapy world, there's certain things that we all come back to, and it seems like no matter where you, what camp you're coming from, we come back to these things. And in the 
success and human development world, there's key principles that everybody comes back to, whether it's Wayne Dwyer, whether it's the writings of Jesus, whether it's Gandhi, whether it's, they all come back to these same things. And so whatever makes it easiest for you to understand these principles of human connectedness, congruence, um, how to, you know, build a, a solid character and a work ethic and to be consistent in the things that you do action wise, the whole grit, grace and gratitude thing. Like it really does play a huge role in your success, whether you think it does or not, whether you think it's all about your brains and your clinical acumen and what you can do with your hands. There's another section that you obviously you have to have to, to not only build a successful practice, but to even just kind of enjoy what Tony Robbins says, the greatest tragedy is, is to reach ultimate success, but not be fulfilled. And so like you want to kind of have a fulfilled life as well. Yeah. I think that out of those books you talked about, like what's, one big lesson that maybe you've, you've focused on recently in your practice. Clarity. Um, and that Preach, comes, brother. Holy yeah. crap. And that's so think, true. Yeah. I think, and that comes from Burchard's latest book. Um, and, and I think it's, it's something that's always going to change. That's what the nice thing is. You don't have to have this grand vision and you, everything goes towards this one single point that, you know, this vision, everybody needs to have a vision or a vision statement or mission statement. Like it changes the older you get. I have four kids now, like my vision and mission is much different than it was prior to my having my four kids. But now like being very clear in what you want in those different phases of your, of your life, whether it's the business phase, whether it's the personal phase, the family phase, the spiritual phase, like to be very clear on that and to have clarity on what it is that you're trying to do each and every day. And then based on that, now you know what action steps you need to take. And so for me, clarity is the biggest thing right now. Like I'm going to be clear on what I'm doing every day. That's awesome, man. I, I think, uh, yeah, students and, and, you know, practitioners alike can learn from that because it's so easy to get distracted by a hundred million things. You know, yeah. I just had a huge opportunity to come up yesterday and all through the night I was tossing and turning, trying to organize it into what, you know, my plan is. And I'm, I'm thinking like, I don't know if it's going to fit because, you know, it's, and having that clarity is something certainly I didn't have 10 years ago or 25 years ago or anything. So. Yeah. And it comes down to more, just more than just return on investment anymore. It's, you know, how much energy is it going to suck out of your life and your day and how much happiness can you get from it? It's not just a, an X and O equation of return on investment anymore. Like to be clear allows you to kind of sift through all that stuff and to say no to things that you know, is just going to drain your, your energy and your, your happiness. And, and maybe it's going to increase your bottom line, but ultimately it's going to, it's going to ruin you for future endeavors because it's going to drain you so bad. Have you read The Obstacles Away by uh, Ryan Holiday? Yeah. So, you know, Kevin Christie and I go back and forth and we're, yeah. I, I say, you know, I kind of joke him about his man crush that he has with Ryan Holiday. So I've, I've read all of his books and now I see that he won up me and got the box set, which is probably got it signed. Or if not, it's in the mail with this gushy love letter with Kevin Christie's um, mascara dripping on it and probably even like a little, a little you know, lipstick kiss on the corner, begging him to sign this box set. I guarantee it. So I've read it all. Yes. Very good. That's awesome. Very good books though. I love Ryan, Ryan holiday. Stillness is a key is a great book. It's one of my favorites. I have not read that one yet, but what you said something in there about the clarity and, and you know, um, the R it's not the ROI. He was saying about the greatest lesson he ever got as an author. And he said, uh, his buddy Tucker Max said, if you want to be an interesting author, just lead an interesting life. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's just it. And that's what um, I was listening to somebody on a podcast the other day that said that like the creative authors are going to be hurt by the pandemic because they get all of their stuff by living interesting lives and going out and doing things and, you know, like experiencing life in in it in, in, in general. And so it's going to be interesting to see what some of the sterile yeah. books are that come out after this. <laughs> yeah the vanilla guide to life right. saltine cracker guide to yeah life. how to live a full and enlightened quarantine life yeah. meditate shower go to bed the daily <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah 
Well, Corey, I know we're up against the clock because you have some patients coming in to get uh, the amazing work you do. So um, any last tips uh, or how can people get a hold of you if they have questions about uh, how to live an interesting life? And <laughs> uh, I don't know anything about that. I haven't, I haven't opened up the life coaching phase of my... Oh, yeah, you're in, you're in Omaha. Forget that last question. Right. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and cow tipping is not real, just so you know. It doesn't really happen. Only in Tommy Boy. Um, I heard a really good reason. They said, if you think cow tipping is real, just try and find it on YouTube because YouTube has has video <laughs> for everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, try it. You know, it's, it will be interesting. We'll get that on YouTube. It, it will be an ultimate fail. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I guess as far as finding this, the motion palpation website, we just revamped that and did a bunch of, of that. We're trying to make that more of a resource for students now um, with the blog and the YouTube channel. We do have an MPI YouTube channel that um, is primarily my baby because Mark doesn't want to do it. Again, that's why I'm the vice president is I basically just do the things Mark doesn't want to do. And he'll probably never die because we're pretty sure he's drinking from an eternal life uh, stream somewhere in Mount Lookout, Ohio. Um, so those resources, we do have some online videos that is also um, through the website that we've done that are basically our four classes online. And then um, we have some more, some more of those videos coming out with a multi-instructor format, which is actually going to be really good and interesting. Um, and then the Facebook page, those are kind of our main conduits right now uh, with resources for, for students and obviously our live classes, which are on hold right now. Um, but that's kind of always been our, our thing is the live workshop classes. But right now, the website, the Facebook page, and YouTube channel are kind of our main conduits. Fantastic. And Corey, any last words of wisdom for uh, our listeners? Uh, I wish I had some, I guess just, you know, I, I always finish my classes by saying, you know, if you tack your days with grit, grace and gratitude, things will fall into place. And I think that's as, as true now today as ever. And, you know, forecasting in, in these weird times is, is hard, but the easiest way to forecast what's going to happen in the future is by what you do today. And so get clear on what you're going to do today and, and take yeah. steps that are going to kind of help you towards that end goal, regardless of whether you're able to leave the house or not. And so just, you know, don't try to forecast anything into the future other than just forecast your day and your clarity and, and take steps towards, towards being a little bit better than you were the day before. That's awesome. Well, Corey, I got to say this interview did not go anything like I thought it was going to go. <laughs> well, that's, I, I like to, awesome. I like to, uh, you know, I, I surprise a lot of people mostly yeah. in the negative way. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of my shtick. Yeah. Well, you know, we did, well, I couldn't forecast this interview and where it would have gone, but I'm glad it went where it did. <laughs> Great. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This, this is a Absolutely. good time. We'll have to do this again. I'd love to. So on behalf of Dr. Corey Campbell out there in beautiful scenic, uh, gorgeous Omaha, Nebraska. This is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there, maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Thanks, Corey. Thank you. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.